0: I want to understand how human intelligence or intelligence or behavior is emerged from activity of bunch of mindless units. Like my job as a scientist now is to find good questions even if I don't have good answers for them. That this change in mentality took me some time. First year in my postdoc, when I joined the lab, I was like super bubbly and I was jumping, bouncing off the walls. You're still pretty bubbly. Am I? Okay, good.
1: This is Brain Inspired. I'm Paul. Hello, everyone. Uh, And the first thing I will say is to turn this episode off immediately if what you're uh, desiring is a show that delves into the science of some researchers' work. Because this is very much a, um, another kind of off-brand episode, uh, off-brand for Brain Inspired anyway, because uh, it focuses more on the academic career side. So my guest today is Ali Mohebi. Um, Ali has been on the podcast before on episode 112 with uh, Ben Engelhard, where we talked uh, a lot about dopamine functions in the brain. Um, and we do talk a little bit about dopamine because that is what Ali is going to continue to focus on. But mainly uh, we talk about the beginnings of Ali's uh, career um, in fact, as a faculty member uh, running a lab. So he recently got a job as a faculty member, and I thought, uh, I got wind of this, and I thought uh, it might be fun to try to track a faculty member, uh, someone who's running a lab, track them over time and uh, periodically check in with them. So if everything goes according to plan on a semi-regular basis, they won't be long form episodes like this, but uh, I might have periodic check-ins with Ollie to see if his plans and dreams are working out the way that he has intended them to. So in this episode, we talk uh, about his background and uh, how he transitioned from an engineering mindset into a scientific mindset um, and his uh, future plans um not we don't lay out. I mean, he has like kind of a five-year plan, but uh, and he talks about some of the details of how he's thinking and approaching his faculty position, uh, but we don't go into a uh, very very specific list of his uh, goals. But I found this a very enjoyable conversation. Um, I hope that you do too. Don't worry, I'm not going to be uh, switching to all life story type of episodes, uh, so you can save your hate mail for uh, another time, or you know, send it to me anyway. Um, I always enjoy those. But uh, if you are early in your academic career, for example, uh, hopefully you'll find this episode. And again, if all things go well, this kind of series of check-ins over time, hopefully you'll find it beneficial. And Ollie's an entertaining guy. So hopefully you'll find it uh, entertaining as well. Um, You can find links to uh, Ollie's website, etc. at the show notes at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 100... 170... 170 braininspired.co slash podcast slash 170 okay here's ali first of all congratulations i've said this to you privately before but a public congratulations to you now thank you what am i congratulating you about
0: i mean i guess i got a new job and that's yeah worthy or i don't know that's congratulation worthy maybe maybe not i don't know So I will, starting next year, I would uh, start a lab uh, and be an assistant professor of psychology in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin. Psychology? Psychology, that's right.
1: Will you be doing psychology or will you be doing neuroscience?
0: Uh, Is there a difference? Yes, there's absolutely a difference. I will not do neuroscience. I'm a neuroscientist. I'm a neurobiologist, I'm, I guess, a psychologist as well. I did two years of postdoc in the psych department, and I'm also an engineer. But uh, I think I would be doing, I, I'm interested in behavior. So I will do psychology, and I'll use, like, every tool to study behavior. One of those is neuroscience.
1: Okay. Right? But but you're a, a previous electrical engineer.
0: A previously electrical engineer, yep.
1: Okay, so let's get into your background just a little bit um, for people who don't know. So you've been on the podcast before uh, with Ben Engelhard talking about dopamine. I've had Uh, the honor. Yeah, yeah. He he got a job uh, shortly after, actually, uh, we did that podcast. So I could very well be doing this with him as well. But uh, I I hope things are well with him. Mm -hmm. So um, I know that you were were born in Iran. And from what I understand, uh, you had options not necessarily to go into research because or or physics because those were dead-end paths monetarily (laughs) monetarily so you went into engineering um, and then fell in love with biomedical engineering um, and then found yourself in I guess psychology and neuroscience so uh, you know I guess the question is like how did you come to be interested in what you're interested in
0: I mean, I I thought about this prior to like our conversation, just like yeah, what would be a good answer for you? And I think I can tell you like eight different stories, and all of them would be equally valid and invalid, right? So maybe I'll tell you one story this time, and then I'll tell you a totally different story next time. Ask good. It. Yeah. Right? The story here is that yeah, I wanted to do like um, I got interested in biomedical engineering and like. Back home, I have to, I mean, people um, are very much encouraged to either go to engineering school or med school. I didn't want to do med school because I hated chemistry and like, I, I, I don't want to do that. So just engineering, yeah, is a better choice for me. And then I picked electrical engineering because I did not have to do a single uh, credit on chemistry. So nice. that I, was it. For I'm me. teaching
1: my, my children chemistry right now and I feel your pain.
0: Oh, yeah, okay, exactly, because yeah. like, I loved math, I loved physics, I loved like, literature, but chemistry, no, why? I mean, I just, I didn't like it, so that was my choice. And then um, I got a master's degree in biomedical engineering back home in Tehran, and I thought, like, I wanted to just become a biomedical engineer and do engineering thingsy and build devices and all that. But at some point I decided not to stay home and leave the country for a number of like sociopolitical reasons perhaps that we can get to or not at some point. And like one way to leave the country for me, uh, was to get into grad school. And oh. I t- like Be- the only way like I-, I couldn't get into like a chemistry program. Because uh, I hated chemistry, I didn't have any background in neuroscience or anything like that. So I applied to an engineering program. I got into an engineering PhD program in Michigan State, and I left the country. I how how much was so
1: the decision to go to graduate school was a function of wanting to leave the country?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I mean, that's one story that is valid. Or okay. Could equally, be. Like just made up. I mean, it's post-talk, but yeah. there's a bit of truth to that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was my decision to be like fully honest. That was, I didn't want to do, I wanted to get an MBA degree and get into the world of business of biomedical engineering devices. That was my choice. Okay. But, but that didn't happen.
1: Well, so when I read your bio on your website, um, that story is that you ended up going to a talk that you fell in
0: love with. Oh yeah, okay, so I'll tell you that story. Let's do that. Uh yeah, I mean, uh one day in Michigan State, uh there was a talk that I I saw the title, now I forgot. It seemed like something I could have been interested in. I went to and Josh Burke, my current boss and postdoc, future postdoc advisor, was giving a lecture, and I really liked I both the stuff that he was talking about and his presentation style, the figures and things that he showed, I'm like I want to be an author on one of those papers. I want to be first author with this guy on one of his papers. So and like because my interest in um electrical engineering was not as strong mm-hmm. I thought maybe I'll just drop out. I've done like 3 years of PhD in electrical engineering. How about if I just drop out and start fresh and do a mm-hmm. psych degree or neuroscience or something like that. So like I sent Josh an email and got an appointment went to his office which was like an hour drive. And I told him that, look, Josh, I like what you do. And I want to do this stuff and not my stuff. How about if I drop out and reapply next year to your program? He's like, look, I mean, you're three and a half years in. How about you just finish and then come do postdoc with me? But, I mean, okay. to the, I mean, uh, uh, that's what happened. I finished my PhD. I got a degree in electrical engineering, and then I went on to do postdoc with them. I didn't do like postdoc interviews elsewhere. I'm like, yep, this guy. I want to work together. And like to this day, I don't know if it was a good decision or not. Oh,
1: okay, yeah,
0: yeah, because like, yeah, but because the, the three and a half
1: it, years in, like, the first few years of a PhD, the it's not like they're linear, right? So the last couple years are. Or like six years, <laughs> the last two years of a PhD yeah. are like the six years or something, right. whereas the first few years are uh, normal.
0: Yeah, normal, like coursework. So I didn't get to have like a cohort in psychology or neuroscience or anything like that. But I have friends now. I go to conferences and I have friends. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it doesn't matter as much that I didn't have my, I didn't get to have my neuroscience cohort because I have friends now. Yeah. Like, I'll go to conferences just to see them. I mean, I go for science as well, but I go to conferences to hang out with my friends.
1: So, okay, so you you've kind of transitioned from a, um, I would, I don't know industry kind of mindset towards yeah. the beginning. Okay, and now right. you're fully academia.
0: I'm fully academia. I mean, I knew at some point that I wanted to be. I mean, I, I guess I, I always had interest, like deep. F- if I may say philosophical interest or like I was always interested in the why kind of questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also had this part of me that loved to build things that I still do it. I build my own rigs. I write my own like control programs to do things. And I think moving forward in the future, when I open my lab and start doing all these things, at some point I will stop doing experiments because I mean, it, mm, I will not be able to do these, like, surgeries, et cetera. But one part I don't want to ever uh, not do is uh, st- stop building. I want to oh. keep building things, building, like, rigs and pushing technology a bit forward. So that's one thing I would always do. So, yeah, I mean, I had that part in me as well. But I guess the neuroscience questions were behavioral neuroscience questions were important to me as well but that's maybe another valid story that why I'm interested in that kind of stuff maybe for next time
1: but, oh okay yeah we'll see yeah, for, for next you... time yeah the idea is that we're going to keep revisiting you um to see the your little uh your career arc and your feelings along the way how are you feeling right now uh, anticipating so you're going to be starting in what next year right in the fall of next or? year yeah yeah okay um are, so there's excitement. There's is there trepidation. Is there anxiety? What what is the what's your current outlook?
0: Yeah, there's all of all of the above. I mean, there's excitement for sure. There's a bit of anxiety because I mean, it's a job I've never been trained for. I mean, many aspects of the job I've never had training for it. Like, and in fact, the reason I deferred my appointment for one year. I mean, typically, if you apply in three, you starts in. Um, the fall of 24. But I uh, pushed it back for, sorry, fall of 23. Yeah. Shit. Oh <laughs> God. I applied in 22. Yes. <laughs> I mean, <that's> what <laughs> in happened. a
1: decade, I will begin my lab. Yeah.
0: Right. <laughs> God. Uh, okay. Yes. I applied in 22. That's right. In November of 22-ish, I applied. So, I mean, the idea is that you start in fall of 23 but i deferred my appointment by 1 year to start in 24 and like i call it my sabbatical year like you know it's typical when you get an appointment as a professor you like every 6 years you'll get a year off to just reconvene and learn new things and think about what you're going to do in the next 5 6 years like i guess i'm lucky to have that sabbatical on my year 0 so i want to spend some time to learn like what to do, how to do, think about uh, like get training, go to workshops uh, on like academic management, on teaching and things mm. like that. And, Cause I know that's, I guess that would help me reduce my anxiety and then be prepared a bit for the job that I'm going to do. That's I guess it's to- a privilege. I think it's a privilege that I'm in this uh, situation where I can spend this year
1: that is a privilege. I mean, everyone that I've seen, you know, when you get just kind of thrown into the fire without the skills that are necessary for the job that you're supposed to do, yeah, people are sweating and running through the buildings, and yeah, just overwhelmed.
0: Right. And I mean, uh, I'm in this um, NAMH uh, fellow training fellowship. It's uh, that would allow me. I mean, it's designed for like a career transition. That would allow me uh, to spend this time, and I'm encouraged to spend this time to prepare for my. Uh, future job. Yeah. And like there's always re- lab renovation that has to be done. I didn't want to move before the space is ready. And I know I've been around long enough to know that um, <laughs> your space will be ready by the time you're in will mean that it will be ready year after.
1: So. Year after. Yeah. I had an idea for a business. It's like a consumer reports kind of business that um, for any construction jobs, that the estimation of time and money is always uh short of you know what like but I, that's the case for academic pursuits as well and research pursuits we always underestimate how long things are going to take
0: yes yes we underestimate which is
1: we're optimistic is yeah that the... we're op-
0: we have hope and dreams so i guess it's
1: so hopes hopes and dreams um do you have a grand vision and a, a sort of T- timeline of how you see things unfolding and a- questions being answered in your career?
0: Yeah, in the first five years, at least. I mean, if, had you asked me this when I applied for jobs, which was, uh, I don't know, in September, October, I had a like better answer, but after chat GPT, I don't know. I mean, all my estimates, <laughs> <laughs> when I applied, there was no chat GPT.
1: What What, what, what difference does that make?
0: I mean, it changes everything. I think. I mean, it changes my approach to neuroscience. I mean, I'm going to spend a year thinking about, like, uh, we'll get to it, uh, maybe uh, a bit later. But I'm like, it, it's a tool. I think for neuroscientists as well in studying behavior. Right. I mean, what is the idea? What am I doing here? I want to understand how human intelligence or intelligence or behavior is emerged from activity of bunch of mindless units right we call neurons or channels ion channels whatever right i mean these could be your nodes in a network and if it's now showing some activity right my my job here as a neuroscientist i think is to decode the brain in the sense that what algorithm is the brain using to produce this behavior, right? And so much as I know, like these large language models, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I mean, they're just, the algorithm they're trained with is like quite simple, minimize an objective function. Look at the data and minimize the difference between your produced results and whatever you were trained on, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no specific algorithm for like understanding Um, or comprehension, text comprehension, et cetera, right? But how is it doing that? So now I'm thinking, can we just... So isn't this what we're doing in neuroscience after all, that we're trying to find out what algorithms these mindless units in the brain are using? So maybe one way we can do neuroscience, we can use our tools, our ideas, to study how these networks produce the behavior. So I'm now like really thinking that we, like I'm not interested in neurons per se, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like not a neurologist or neurobiologist. I mean, I'm trained as a neurobiologist, but my goal is not to fix the brain. I mean, if your goal is to find a cure to Parkinson's disease, If you I mean, then you, you need to know your neurons, right? I mean the computer analogy that like do I need to understand the transistor if my job is to find out how your code works. Right. Right? I mean, not really. But if my computer is broken, I may need to understand how transistor works or how different parts of the machine work to put it back together and fix it. So like someone who's doing translational neuroscience, like is really interested in how neurons work. I'm not as interested. I still study them but in the context of how they encode information and how they like collaboratively help us guide in this universe
1: okay but as as someone who's interested in behavior primarily Mm -hmm. uh, i know that you're interested in a lot of other things as well but i mean has uh the like chat gpt has it changed the way that you think about behavior and it's um you're like sort of zooming out you're like overall overview of behavior right like that uh that we're going to figure out um what you've wanted to figure out about behavior how it comes about it as much as you can call what Chat gpt does behavior quote unquote i mean has it changed the way that you view like your your own questions and outlook on it
0: I mean, it is, I think, starting to change. I'm, I don't have like concrete thoughts yet about it. I'm still trying to figure out and understand it better, but I think it has changed it a bit and it will keep changing it. I mean, how I define behavior, what aspects of behavior, what am I interested in? Mm. I mean, holding on to a conversation, right? is working memory, basically. And my first plan in the lab is to study working memory. And the big project can have specific like goals and how to study what aspects of it to study, but I guess like part of it is like holding on to the conversation and ChatGPT seems to be able to do that to some extent, right? And um, yeah, how would you, right? And a network like how would network dynamics maintain mm. some information some context information?
1: Well in a computer it's easy. Memory is easy, right?
0: Right. But is this memory or not? Right? I don't know. So, right. This is something that I don't know. Maybe I'm reading, I have to read more, but is it like very discrete memory that is explicitly encoded or is it maintained through some network dynamics, right? Because yeah, it's boring if you just keep uh, like everything in a memory stack. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's boring. But from what I feel is that it's not, it's able to Like your conversation with ChatGPT seems to be able to tip the network to some space in the States, um, space that uh, would like, yeah, maintain this memory. It seems like very similar to what people um, have been doing.
1: So you've been playing with, uh, like having conversations with, with, I guess, as everyone else has.
0: Yeah, right. What do you use it for? I mean, I use it for, like, writing codes these days. Oh, it's yeah. it's great. It helps me. I mean, maybe not first attempt, it has some bugs and things. But I mean, if I'm writing a function to do something, I mean, I don't have to spend an hour writing that and testing it. I'll ask ChatGPT, write it for me, and then I'll just supervise it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think, my main use these days for it.
1: Okay, but okay, let's go back to how you think it's changed everything. <laughs> like you, uh, changed. Ha, like how so in terms of like what you're asking and what your research. Yeah, I guess
0: that's right. So I guess like all, like ChatGPT and maybe deep learning in general, right? So oh. like two effects on neuroscience. I think one is like tool development. Now we have better tools thanks to all these uh, like AI systems. Yeah, we have like deep lab cut that. Previously, we had to sit there and score videos for tracking animal position and a maze. Now we don't have to do that. I know
1: it's like embarrassing. I, right? recent, recent history is kind of embarrassing.
0: Like I, I refused to do that <laughs> because it was just so demeaning. I mean, it was the only thing to do, but I refused to do it. I I designed my experiments so that I didn't have to do that because, like, I did. I was going to study like whisker movement at some point, and like this was. Like many years back, where like these tools were not as advanced, and it seemed so just demeaning to sit there and do these, so I decided not to do that project. But so yeah, I mean, one thing is that it helps us do. um, It's giving us better tools, right? Like writing codes, for example, Mm -hmm. right? I don't have to spend my time because I'm not a software engineer. I don't have to spend that time uh, doing that, and now I can spend it uh, in other ways. But I think. Beyond that, what it, it it makes me think more about behavior and what is behavior, and how you again how you can use tools that we currently use in neuroscience to get from collective to decode algorithms from collective activity of some nodes in the network. Okay, I know that I mean the, these networks are not like spiking networks, most of them. Right, uh, but I think like some of the tools that we have developed over the years may help us, may be able to help us decode these algorithms. And if so, I mean, this is like we can treat it like a brain, right? Where we we ha- we now have access to every single neuron, as yeah. opposed to recording from like I don't know fifty, two hundred, a thousand out of a billion. Right. So,
1: I think one of the things that it has done to because i you know I, I guess everyone is reflecting on well what what does this mean about how I think about intelligence and behavior um and for me that's always an open question because I have no answers uh but it really hammers home the vast variety of multiple realizability um and i have i i don't i'm actually um i i don't think that um these transformers like are the end all right I don't think that they're intelligence yeah um, but uh, it does like really um, hammer home that there are lots of different ways to skin a cat, I suppose, mm-hmm. you, is the old adage that uh, we don't use anymore.
0: We should not. Yeah,
1: so is that part of what you're thinking as well? Like, um,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. So yeah, I don't think they're intelligent, but they seem to be capable of uh, producing some aspects of intelligent behavior, right? So, and that's what I'm interested in to like figure out. And I think we can use them as study subjects. So, so far I've been studying rodents mostly for neuroscience, but I think I may want to have another research program developed to study these as agents of intelligent behavior as well.
1: But that's going to be a crowded road, Uh, right? I think aren't a lot of people thinking that same thing? Like, oh, I will study transformers. It won't
0: be as crowded as dopamine field. Oh, I guess for some I don't point. know, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. I mean, of course, so yeah, I'll be part of the crowd. It's good to have like group efforts. Yeah, hmm. yeah but absolutely. But I think I mean each scientist would, I mean, part of what we try to do is we want to craft our own way of looking at things and combining things and I think I I'll have this unique opportunity and these like tool sets and skill sets that I like, I I I, I want to keep studying uh, rodent behavior as well, and I want to study their brain. But as an additional subject, maybe at some point I'll study okay. these artificial agents too.
1: One of the reasons why I wanted to do this with you is uh, very selfish. Because when I think of my own path, um, mm-hmm. so what, I'm going to ask you a question that I wouldn't want anyone to ask of me because I don't have a good answer for it. Um, which is like how your views and relationship, I guess, with science um, and and thinking about what science is and engaging with it, how that's sort of changed over the years for you. Um, Because it's a really hard question for me to even approach an answer to. And I feel like I would just ramble on without
0: saying anything. Yeah, I think maybe I can have some... Meaningful thought about that because I was not trained as a scientist until like late or like until after grad school. I was trained as an engineer, right? So, mm-hmm. and this, is like these are two different philosophies, I would say. So, like I got to learn how to be a scientist from Josh and interaction with people in his lab at schools, etc. So, in my like very adulthood. So, like an engine. I mean, the big difference between an engineer and a scientist. I would say that if you're an engineer, you are amazing at solving problems, right? You're a contractor. Well
1: enough. Well That's, enough. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Right. That's I mean, caveat. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. We. If you're a good engineer, if you're an amazing engineer, you're amazing at solving problems, right? Uh, I mean, you're a contractor. Someone shows up with a problem and will ask you, can you solve this for me? But you're amazing
1: you- at solving the problem uh at twice the cost that you estimate and twice the time. <laughs>
0: yes, <laughs> you're not estimate. a you're not a good manager necessarily, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean that's what happens when you put nerds on management positions. I mean we get Silicon Valley, I guess. Um but that's a separate conversation for another time. Um but but you're not very good at asking questions, and I think a good scientist i mean this was this took me some time to realize that like my job as a scientist now is to find good questions, even if I don't have good answers for them that this change in mentality took me some time mm-hmm. like I showed up as an engineer and I'm like i'm this I'm happy, bubbly guy that like, I want to just code up things and build things and put these probes in the brain and do these measurements. And Josh is like, but why, what's mm. the question? What are you trying to show? And I, then I'm yeah. like, I don't know. It's cool. Isn't it? I mean, look, I can double the channel count and I can like use these like cool new digital systems and like, you don't have to use like analog amplifiers for your EFAS anymore. He's like, yeah, sure, but what is the point now? Tell me, what is the question you're going to ask? And I'm like, I don't know. I mean, we'll just, uh, I'll just do whatever everyone seems to be doing—stamp collection. I'll just go there and and just record from a bunch of cells and then try to craft a story. And okay,
1: so you're touching on like something that I, I've observed. Um, I mean, I, David Popol comes to mind because, you know, lots of people um, come to mind actually who sort of preach that, uh, like at an early stage of your career, you need to be asking this, these sorts of questions, right? So in the beginning, you kind of do what everyone else is doing and it's cool and you do it because it's cool and you can, you know, the question is kind of already set, especially when you're being advised by someone often. Um. And then it seems like later—I don't know what stage it is—later in people's careers, then they then they start asking the meta questions and realizing, oh, well, we don't actually know what we're asking or why we're asking it. And and that's when you start digging down. And that seems to be happening to you right now. I mean, are you going to start preaching to people like uh, coming into science that they need to at, start developing that sense immediately? And, and if so, why would that be?
0: Yeah. So I think, I mean, there are things you need to learn. You need to learn your some skill sets. I mean, that's something you have to learn. And I mean, this would be different for grad student versus postdoc. I mean, different stages of your um, training, I think, would be different. For postdocs in my future lab, I want them to be asking questions. I mean, maybe first year or two, it's okay to answer questions that I have in mind. Hmm. But after year two, I want them to be working on their own questions, something that they can seal and take it with them. Hmm. Right. Uh, Because we don't have much time to just um, walk around with tools and experiment. I mean, it's cool to learn new things always. I mean, I'm learning new techniques still. I mean, after being posted for eight years now, God. It's been long and we can talk about that as well at some point, but I'm still learning I mean, there's always new things to learn, new cool techniques to learn, but I think it's important to develop your own questions because that's what science, but can't you get
1: bogged down in the question? And so if you, okay, so you ask a good question, right? And then you Mm -hmm. think, well, how would I answer that? But then I guess that's philosophy, right? Because then you can just ask another question and ask another question and not end up not doing anything. Paralysis by analysis.
0: Right. But I think, yeah, then science, I would say, would be the art of... I mean, that's the difference between a scientist and a philosopher, right? A scientist should be able to break it down, break down those meta questions to smaller oh. achievable units that then you can answer. in Like, yeah, I cannot... I mean, I... Okay, one of uh, another viable story or valid story of me going into neuroscience was like free will and consciousness. I wanted to know. Of course. Of course. Right? (laughs) Why wouldn't you? I'm like, I want to know, I I need the answer for like that free will, right? But how would you do that experimentally? I think a scientist would be interested in breaking it down or like reducing scientists are like very, or I mean. I guess science has been good at reduction. I mean, can reduce that like huge meta question to something more tangible.
1: But something like free will, and we don't have to talk about free will specifically, um, you know, the Libet experiments. um, So you reduce it, you do an experiment, but then the notion of free will itself is just so slippery that you can interpret it interpret the results of an experiment in such a way that you end up redefining what free will is and um and then you're not actually answering any questions necessarily you're getting data
0: you're getting some data that would help you better understand it and then may help others better understand it in the future would help i mean uh you had a show a few weeks back about like memory and how I mean, the optogenetics uh, has changed uh, or has helped philosophers understand, I mean, how memory is encoded and engrams and all that, right? So mm. I guess you make some progress that then some people who are more interested in the meta question can use your evidence to come up with better working models of these big concepts.
1: Do you think that, um, so again, this is like pure, really selfish of me, uh So I'm glad that you decided to have this conversation with me, but do do you think that you're, uh, I know you're humble, so you're not going to answer this well. Do you think that you're kind of ahead of the curve, um, in terms of people getting academic scientific research, academic positions with your philosophy and, uh, going into, you know, for running a lab and for, for asking questions and tackling questions?
0: Yeah I mean maybe and the reason would be that I spent so many years doing a postdoc I think I mean had I started uh, my lab in year 3 or 4 of my postdoc I would have been more maybe I wouldn't use the word ambitious for it I would have been more like pragmatic and I wanted to like publish in big journals and get the fancy flashiest but I think it's part of aging as well that like calmed me down that changed my priorities how old are you but, uh i am 38 now okay so I like, i started post like when i was 30 and eight years gone uh i mean it was pandemic i guess to be honest i wanted to be out um in hmm. 2019 but then pandemic happened and jobs and everything just yeah life but i think what helped me realize is that, I mean, I lost that hunger for um, publishing in best journals and flashiest data and everything. I started thinking uh, more about like the why question, Hmm. like what are we exactly doing? Like part of it is that like, am I, like I'm getting paid by, taxpayers to study something that is useful for human beings so it is like very selfish and irresponsible if i funnel that fund to publish something flashy just to get famous and it's like a dumb way of being famous because this fame is like super local and uh is limited to uh i don't know i mean Like you would be famous among like 200 people. Not worth it. Not worth spending my life that way. Yeah, but... I become a rock star if I wanted to do that. But there are
1: benefits of being a rock star. I mean, that helps you. Like you could sell out and then use that to 10x your productivity on what you actually want to do, right?
0: Hmm. Yeah. Is that so? (laughs) Or by that point, you become that villain, right? That you Mm -hmm. would then you would be chasing that fame. You would be chasing, I mean, I guess I, one of the advices that I got, I mean, I'm going around now uh, and I will go around, ask for advice from people who I trust and like how to run a successful lab. One yes. of the things that I got was that you should know what you want and not let other things distract you. If your goal is to become famous, focus on that. You don't have to do a good science if your goal is that. If your goal is to publish in top journals, that's your goal. If your goal is to win awards, that's your goal. Sit there. And uh, if your goal is to do good science, then you should not care whether or not you're getting awards. Because if you do that, you will become very bitter and resentful. What
1: what it, what, what proportion of academics do you think are primarily concerned with legacy?
0: Uh, Good, good fraction i would say
1: <laughs> they're successful those are those are the super six at least yeah. in the eyes of uh publication records and um mm-hmm. uh, invitations to, and you know keynotes and st- i'm not trying to badmouth anyone uh, uh you yeah, know it's no. just a it's a valid thing that you know when i was a postdoc and thinking about well should i get a faculty position these sorts of questions drove me away from it because i wanted to be honest with myself yeah. about You know aspirations and why someone would write a grant and uh, for what reason and it's you know kind of just to keep myself going instead of doing something
0: honest. Exactly right. I mean, if you become a grant writing machine, if that's your goal to have like five R ones and run a big lab with like thirty postdocs, that's your goal. Good for you, right? I mean, but if that's not your goal, don't let that distract you or. So let that make yours if that makes any sense. I mean, is that like sometimes you would because, like, um, um, there's some correlation between success with those measures and good science, right? I mean, uh, but it's not 100%. So, it would happen that you see that like someone in your field of study would win an award that you think you are worthier than them winning that award. And then, if your goal, if you set your goal to win awards. Um, that good for you, but if not, that would hurt you, right? if you should that would hurt you that I deserve that award more than they did. Oh. Why did I not get it right? And then that would distract you from doing your goal. I mean if that's not your goal, you should not be bothered by that at all. if that makes any sense if that's if i if you feel that you're happy with having a small sized lab, right? having like two grad students, one postdoc, one lab manager, and work as a small team, you don't need five grants because if you get five grants, then you need to maintain that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and if that's your goal, if you want to be managing a big lab, great. That's your goal. That's not mine. I mean, I decided that's not mine and I will not, um, at least for the next decade, that's not my goal uh and i will not let yeah
1: so part of this part of the reason why i wanted to do this is we're going to periodically check in to see yeah. how your thoughts have changed um so this is sort of an adjacent topic but are you a follow your passion kind of person or i mean these aren't uh um, you know exclusive axes but follow your passion versus work towards something and then and your passion develops through that where would you put yourself in that
0: i mean uh i have been the latter, but I'm becoming more and more follow the passion, right? Oh. Kind of guy, because now I think that, again aging might be part of it too. That I'm like you're running fuck out it. of time. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. The, the fuck it line
1: reduces yeah. over time. Yeah,
0: I'm like I'm I don't have time for this thing. That like life is now too short, and I have some years. I have to do I have to follow my passion. Otherwise, like why am I in this? Hmm job that is not paying as well as other activities that i can do well and yeah i mean if it's not following my passion i'm in the wrong business but but yeah it's good to like follow up i mean one reason i am like very eager to do this together is just to see myself i guess this would be a mirror of like how would i change in years would i become that because like. First year in my postdoc when I joined the lab, I was like super bubbly and I was (laughs) jumping, bouncing off the walls. You're still pretty bubbly. Am I okay? Good, great. And then uh, there was an older postdoc in the lab who told another one in the lab that he's just so happy. Oh, he hasn't been crushed by the system yet, and give him a year or two, he will become like us. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's truth to that. You'll get maybe defeated by the system. You'll get crushed and you will change. Like I've been thinking about like, now I have these ideals in my head that like, I would be different. I will start a lab and I would try to implement my thoughts and I would be a good person. And at some point, I mean, is it like, Two faced story of uh, Batman. That what did he say? That you either die a hero or live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Mm. So is that what happens to professors uh, or uh, like or uh, to anyone? Right. Like I was thinking of like I don't know like political leaders. I was two thousand eight. One reason I moved to I was like very excited to move to the U.S. and not go to like Europe to study. Like a bunch of my friends went to like Switzerland or other countries uh, to study and pursue the degrees. So there's like a mass exodus. It was like, I have more friends now outside of Iran than I have inside. Hmm. I mean, uh, and like many of them in Silicon Valley now because like I went to an engineering school and yeah, this is their makeup. All your friends are rich. <laughs> yes, way, I mean, yeah, yeah I, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, if you go to restaurants, I mean, I will, I mean, you can tell by the kind of restaurants <laughs> that they pick and I pick, and me like staring at the menu prices. <laughs> I'll
1: have an appetizer, one
0: appetizer. Yes, I'll get an appetizer, yeah. Uh, definitely. But so like it was 2008, Obama was running for presidency. I remember I was still back home. He was on like campaign tour. He gave, uh, he was, like he was talking in Berlin. And I remember this talk like clearly he was saying that the walls cannot stand and then he went on talking about like using walls as metaphor for like um prejudice and, like et cetera, et cetera. Right. yeah right and i love this. look at this guy he is so amazing and like the country will change forever and, mm-hmm. and like I, I guess i was lucky i joined that tier i moved to the us when he would he started becoming president but things didn't like he wasn't the like by the time he left the office he was not that uh person anymore right oh, and he it's wasn't
1: like, like, okay it,
0: like it's the story of these like uh, again is that aging that you become more conservative you change is it like uh, the story of like berkeley hippies who voted for reagan right i mean yes summer of love they're all like dancing and happy here but come 80s they all voted reagan so I don't know. I mean, I'm like one of my, again, sorry, I'm just telling stories after stories. But that's how I think. I mean, science is about storytelling part of it too. So. It's I mean, all a
1: story. That's the thing. That, that, that's, that's something that comes with aging as well. And I suppose wisdom is that it's all stories.
0: It's all stories. Yep. It's all made up stories, not true. I mean, valid to some extent, equally valid and invalid.
1: Gets us yeah. to the moon, et cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. We'll take us there. So the uh, first year, I mean, I went to a brain initiative meeting. I think this was Obama speaking of them, Obama brain initiative, like first PI meeting. I was not a PI, but I mean, I guess each PI could take one person. I tagged along with Josh and I'm sitting there. There's this new PI. Uh there, There's a panel on like data management and codes, et cetera. There's this new guy was he Genelia? I think he was a Genelia or somewhere. One of these like Genelia Allen. Some of these one of these well well
1: funded institutes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and he was like very gung about like code practices and how we should just all share codes and have like our GitHub repositories and <laughs> like Python, well, not even Python, Pythonic. Uh, and, um, I'm like, oh, this is such a cool guy, uh, and he was all about open source and. Three, four, so I was like following him. And uh, after three or four years, I think he left that institute, whatever it was, and started working for Zuckerberg. Uh huh. And I'm like, hmm. Oh, like he sold out? And I I, I wouldn't use that word, but he changed his views on like open academia and everything, right? Oh. Oh. Because he was like preaching open academia. Right, so much. And then I, I guess people change, right? So I am interested to see how I would or would not change. I mean- If you're
1: gonna become a villain. <laughs> yeah,
0: I'm <gonna laughs> become a villain. Yeah. Mean, that's
1: sad. Yeah. All right, well, we, we don't have to um, make this like so long or anything, but I, I wanna kind of hold your feet to the fire and mm-hmm. um, not to make you lay out your research plan, but I, I want to get like your vision, you know, a few years down the road, what you think you might want to accomplish. Um, and, and so there's that, there's the science aspect and then the uh, whittling away of your bubbliness aspect as well that we'll track over time. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. So science aspect. So I I guess I, I, in my postdoc, I became a dopamine guy. I studied this molecule and how it affects the behavior, and I think I uh, and started me. Um, I started thinking uh, about like neuromodulation in general in the brain, right? Because I mean, one thing that is very interesting about this molecule and a few other that are similar to this is that, like, okay, sorry, let's uh, go one step back. So, brain. I mean, how does neuron uh, communicates? They just uh, they're connected to each other, and uh, they, mm, chemi- they, they chemically communicate with each other. Right, that if neuron A is active, it will uh, pass down some action potential that would lead to some chemical getting dumped at the other one, and that other one picks it up and pass it along. Right. So, like most of these are like most cells communicate by uh, through like two molecules, glutamate or GABA that are mostly excitatory or inhibitory. So that is very similar to our like artificial neural nets, right? So mm-hmm. you're either, either positive or negative. You either stimulate the other neuron or inhibit the other neuron. And this is very local. So you have these n- local networks in different parts of the brain that communicate through these chemicals. But then there are these neuromod... So we call these like neurotransmitters, GABA, glutamate, etc. cetera, that, um, mm-hmm. cells used for transmission, like fast, a fast transmission. I mean, um, but then there are these neuromodulators, uh, that are not local to the brain, right? So there's this nuclei somewhere in the brain, in the midbrain that produces dopamine and then broadcasts it all over the brain. There's another nuclei that would broadcast serotonin or acetylcholine or norepinephrine. I call them the big four. I mean, in Bay Area, big four are Apple, Google, Microsoft, whatever, but in the brain, my big four are these um, dopamine, acetylcholine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, right? So they seem to have like a more global function in the brain, right? They don't necessarily excite or inhibit uh, activity of these cells. I mean, they just modulate the activity of these local networks. So my job, I think, would be to understand how these molecules work together to sculpt uh, network states. Sculpt, that's a good word. Yeah. I mean, in the context of cognitive tasks, like very specifically, uh, working memory. I mean, we know that dopamine, for example, is very important for working memory. I mean, working memory is often related to this one part of... Uh, the prefrontal cortex that in um, primates would be like dorsolateral prefrontal cortex and uh, rodents would be medial prefrontal cortex. And it seems like if you, uh, so activity of neurons in that brain is related to working memory. But if you deplete that brain area of dopamine, if you disrupt dopaminergic transmission in that area, the effect on behavior, on working memory behavior is almost as if you have scooped that part of the brain out. So it is absolutely necessary. And like the exact details of it is a bit unknown. And then you know, part of what I found during my postdoc years is that most of these neuromodulators won't act alone. There's a collaborative effort between like, for example, in the striatum that I studied, uh, there is a... Mm, like coordinated uh, activity between dopamine and acetylcholine release. Mm -hmm. So how these different... And then we know that like working memory, like attention is an important part of working memory, right? And attention, like historically, people have attributed that to acetylcholine function, right? And how these... So part of my job would be to better understand how these neuromodulators sculpt network dynamics in the service of certain aspects, certain behavior, cognitive behaviors. Such what's as the
1: answer? Therapy. You have to, what's the answer? And then we'll revisit your uh, hypothesis, your uh, your answer.
0: Hmm. <laughs> I guess. I, I would say that uh, they...
1: Um, Sorry, what's the story going to end up being? We, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the it in story, terms of story. The story is a, a story. manifold. Yeah. Oh,
0: right? it's a manifold. And did I say the oh, right word? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right So yeah, I think I mean what they do is that if you look at the like network dynamics, uh, these neuromodulator would help us get to that um, like stable points, basically, would yes. help the trajectory get there and stay there.
1: Oh, on a manifold.
0: On a manifold. Yeah, yeah.
1: Okay. So so in uh, let's say five years, what does your lab look like? How many postdocs do you have? How many graduate students?
0: so i I think I want to keep it small. I mean not more than five, six people, because like I want to be involved more, and I think mm-hmm. at some point I will lose my focus if there are like too many projects going on in the lab. I don't want to become just a lab manager. Uh, I want to be involved in the science of the lab as well, so I think I'll keep it small, at least to begin with, and you're and hell like, bent.
1: On staying in academia. Oh,
0: sorry. What was that? I-
1: You're hell bent on staying hmm, in academia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For those listening, <laughs> I mean, there's a little, yeah, there's a little hitch in there, but um, yeah, with the head head bobbing, right? Yeah, I guess you never know.
0: You never know. Okay.
1: Anything we uh, you want to highlight that we didn't cover?
0: There's so many things that I have to learn between now and then. I'm developing a rule book for the lab. That would be um, one of my projects now. To like figure out some of these things, like I mean to think more carefully about like lab meetings. What is the function of a lab meeting? How and like I will have a blog, I mean my I'm planning to start writing some of these thoughts down. I will post them on the blog to like some, and then that would be a way of keeping track of my thoughts as well. Like what are the best practices for maintaining code in the lab? So I'm working with these. I mean, I love this framework of data joint. I mean, this, now I guess they're a company, but funded by NIH, that they provide a platform and a framework for like neuroscience data management. Hmm. I'm working with them as well. And like how to maintain good code practices, data sharing and all that. I mean, part of it, I want to like come up with rule book and things that like by the time I start the lab, we have everything established and it would be like, go, go, go. And it would be, um, things would be at a state where I could like look at everyone's data. Right? And everyone can look at everyone else's data, right? it would be like, I don't know, like Jupyter Notebooks that would just go grab your data as you keep, like, would analyze your data automatically as you keep adding more data to the repository that would get lumped into your analysis pipeline. We'll see, I mean, how much of a pipe dream these things are, but I want to spend like a good year setting up uh, some good foundation for the lab in okay. terms of technological, data management.
1: But did you, so this my experience as a postdoc and, and grad, well, m- more as a postdoc, it's like every year we had these meetings about how we needed to, you know, develop a system that we could all yeah. share data and, but but the okay. tools changed every year. The mm-hmm. um, And it, we would end the meeting with optimism that we were going to implement this thing. And then it never really happened, kind of happened. And then the following year we would have this meeting, well, we need to do this. And now Mm -hmm. there's this thing that we need to learn, uh, Jupiter notebooks come along, for example. Right. And then the next year, you know, then it's GitHub and it, it, for, you know, the, um, the tools changed over time and the intention remained the same but it never happened. So so this is going to, you're going to do this, huh?
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I'm going to uh, ask for help from people who know this because like spikes are spikes, right? I mean, tools, yes. Like analysis tools will change, but I think if we can track that, if we can have like good way, good, like organized way of uh, collecting our data and storing our data and now there are, I think, attempts by, like, professionals to do it. Because, like, yeah. in the past, I, we would do it on our own, right? Like, I had my own, like, way of storing data that was different from the person sitting next to me. I had, like, the name of these variables. But, like, now, like, neurodata data without borders, I think, is another attempt to, like, formalize and have, like, a data standard for neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So I'm, like, very hopeful that by adopting these uh, new frameworks, this can last a bit longer. I mean, but we would is, still have those like regular meetings. I've been into so many of these meetings that yeah. everyone is like, yes, we should share code we, and we should yeah. like all um, organize our data, but then we will go because that's not our job. That's, we are not trained to do that. Right. But some professionals who like now in data joint or nerd data without borders and similar attempts that are funded by NIH and NSF and all these like agencies I think these are good initiatives
1: but this that... is not okay so this is another thing to track over time this is not why one gets into science to think about these things and you end up spending so much of your time and effort thinking <laughs> about th- these meta questions right and then some people become um enamored with that question instead of the actual science questions but um, I, I don't know is that do you think that's part of the loss of bubbliness over time
0: Hmm, maybe. Yeah, right. But I guess what I want to pay it up front. I want to make sure that I'm uh, setting things in place and I'm getting help from professionals, right? Because like one thing is that sometimes as scientists we think that we know the answer and we know how to do it. We are smart. And like, no, I have a better solution for this, right? What does that guy know? I mean, (laughs) um, data has to be stored this way. And we that's how we uh, end up with having proliferation of codes, tools, et cetera. I mean, the saying is that uh, scientists will use each other's toothbrush, but will not use each <laughs> tools and code. Right? I remember,
1: uh, for some reason, this memory sticks in my head, I think because I'm embarrassed about it. We were I think we were at SFN, uh, and I was a postdoc. And <clears> there <throat> was a few PIs standing around, and I was part of this conversation, talking about the best way to save references to save like PDFs. Right. And I was like, no, no, I have the best way how to name them, you know, in in the folder. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was so confident, (laughs) I still I still do it that way. But now I'm just used to it, you know, but everyone had a different way of naming PDFs. And,
0: you know, and so, yeah, what if we hire professionals who uh, whose job is to do this? I mean, okay, they may not be as smart as you, but that's fine. I mean I remember this um I mean a friend of mine once uh, he said like he had uh, he was going through rough patch and said like yeah, um in my therapy sessions um I would go to therapy but then my goal was to prove to my uh therapist that I'm smarter than you oh jeez and then yeah. at some point said that the therapist was a smart person they got back to me and said look you are very smart you're smarter than me okay now let's get to it but this is my job i'm trained to do this Hmm. can we please like can you stop this game so the therapist
1: knew that they were working with a narcissist
0: (laughs) yes yeah i mean uh, it's very clear right it it becomes clear i mean Hmm. we both have worked with narcissists we know how i mean it it just sticks out Mm. so i think i mean uh, sometimes we have that attitude with like tool development or software, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, that thing like, no, I mean let some professional do that. I mean I
1: agree. Yeah.
0: A like an editor in a journal, right? I mean, you may know better how to like write now it's chat GPT, maybe. I mean you should just oh, just submit. Full I mean full they may circle. know better than uh, yeah. you how to write things, but I mean the ideas are still yours. And I mean, one advice I was given, like said, I'm like soliciting advice was that if you can spend money to solve a problem, if you can solve a problem by throwing money at it, just do that. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Oh. And money is fungible. Uh, time is not. Don't spend a year coming up with a solution that already exists just to save like, because like, the time you're losing is worth more than that. The last point that I wanted to say Mm -hmm. that I missed is that I've been to many career panels in my years and some of like I walked out of many of these like very resentful. And why? a guy would show up on these. I mean, because like when you're a postdoc and you're looking for academic positions, you are very desperate because the odds of getting that job is very low. And most of the stories that you hear in career panels are, have this like survivors bias to them, right? Yeah. It's the story. And, and like we talked about how like stories are post hoc. We make up these stories after. I mean, and then you see this person sitting up there and telling you what to do to be successful in science. And they're like, no, I mean, don't, don't you forget what stage. You were at when you were postdoc applying for these jobs, and this is one of my worries that I don't want to become a person like I don't want. I remember how stressful it is. I mean, I want to keep remembering how stressful it is to apply for an academic position and how low your odds are. Like I send out applications, maybe forty applications Ooh. to Ooh. Uh, like different schools. Is that average? Yeah. What do you think is average? I, I think that's average. Okay. If not, right? I mean, I've heard people sending up to eighty, mm-hmm. so they were not. I would have sent 80, but uh, there were not positions that I would have been interested in. I did not hear back from 20 of them, like nothing, Mm -hmm. radio silence. I mean, would have appreciated a very kind rejection that you're great and amazing, (laughs) but we had a great pool of applicants and sorry, come back next year. So like half of them, I didn't hear anything. Um, Half of, uh, I mean, maybe 10 of them, I got rejections from the same like formal letter i appreciate mm-hmm. yep i mean and i got 10 zoom interviews so they have like uh, like two stages first like they do a screening interview now they call it and which might be like 10 people or something around those numbers and then they invite to like two or three or four people on campus for a visit so mm-hmm. i got 10 of these zoom interviews and uh i got four campus visits and I guess like in the end, I have like three offers to choose from, right? Which I feel like very fortunate for this. And there's definitely an element of luck in this. And, um, and there's so many talented, amazing, mm-hmm. brilliant friends of mine might not have had that chance, or like I, I was lucky that I, um, I I was privileged enough, uh, to stay in academia during the pandemic. I know so many people had to, um, against their will. I mean, had to choose uh, other careers because there's nothing wrong with not choosing academia. There's absolutely everything is right about not choosing. <laughs> it. I mean, it's a training stage, right? You yeah. you're getting trained to decide what to do next, right? That next thing should not necessarily, I mean, it doesn't work on paper numbers, right? So like what I don't want uh, people to take from this conversation we now have is like, I don't want uh, my enthusiasm about this job just defeat that. I mean, I don't want it to be interpreted wrongly as if like, do your best and you'll get the job that you deserve. No, it doesn't happen. I mean, often, and I think there's something wrong with academia, like with with the way we train people for jobs that don't exist sometimes <laughs> moving forward, I want to be like very uh, cognitive of this. I want, like in my lab, I want to provide opportunities for like alternative careers because like, I mean, yeah, this is broken in academia. Hmm. Um, that if you promise everyone that you will get an academic position, oh. right? And if you train them for this, I mean, it will be just disappointment. Like,
1: what about um, if you have, let's say you have a graduate student or a postdoc in your lab that you judge to be incompetent with respect mm-hmm. to the particular skills needed or questions n- being needed to be asked. What what do you do with them? Do you, um, or do you sit down and have an honest conversation with them? Do you let them perseverate? What do you do?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, incompetent. In what sense? So, I mean, I think I mean all of us. I mean, are competent uh, in some aspect of our behavior, right? I mean, I think we, we have to just find out what is the thing. Like my role as a mentor would be to help you get what you want, right? I'm like the dopamine guy, right? Will not excite or inhibit us. Dopamine guy. I will just modulate. I'm just <laughs> yeah. sitting there to help you modulate to get what you want out of this, right? So if you are struggling and you're like a third year, I think we should have an honest conversation. Uh, about your goals, your career goals, Hmm. right? Because like there's like me going into this like job market, I was thinking that, okay, I'll try it. There's a chance I'll get a job and there's a very good chance I will not get a single offer. And then I will move on with my life. I'll find another thing that would make me happy and fulfilled in life. I love baking, I would do that, but I can, you know, there's so many other like good research opportunities here in the Bay area where I live that I can work for a company who studies, uh, who's interested in these uh, the stuff that I'm interested in. Like academia is not the only solution or like if nothing works, like I can have another thing that makes me uh, fulfilled. So I think part of my job would be to help this person who's struggling to struggle less and find something that's more meaningful for them and sometimes i think that people don't do that in academia some like i don't want to say mentors because a good mentor should do that some advisors and supervisors will not do that i had this conversation in my um during the jobs interview cycle that i was going around having you meet with so many people and talk i had this exact conversation with one professor i asked him what do you think I should do with this person? I mean, um, should I guide them to select an alternative career or not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and his answer, which broke my heart, was that, are they useful to your research or not?
1: So it's pragmatic. Is, so, this, yeah, this is a person who's been in science for a long time.
0: Yeah. yeah. And what he said is that if they're good, if they're doing the job that you want, keep them. It's your career on the line. <sighs> It's out there. The thought is out there. It's like it's your. Career. If they're useful for you, if you've trained them for three years and they're yeah. useful to you, just keep them. And like my, yeah, I mean that is what maybe. I mean, some people think that way. I don't think. I'm like, uh, I would help them gain expertise. I would assign them to projects that would give them skills that would be useful for like alternative uh, careers. Or if like someone, I mean, yeah. I mean, I was at uh, uh, when I was a grad student halfway through. Like I told you earlier, that I wanted to drop out. I mean, that was like a recommendation that I received. But everyone feels really that convenient. way at some
1: point, right?
0: Yeah, fair. Uh, Maybe mo- yeah. most people. <laughs> most people yeah. may think, yeah, I may feel that, and like I-, I was totally fine. Now, like in hindsight, I was totally fine. Of, uh, if I wouldn't felt like a failure, right? Mm. Uh, no, this is. I mean. No, this is not a good choice at this point and if i continue doing things that i don't like and i struggle in that's maybe more of a failure than like choosing like voluntarily and actively and consciously making a uh brave choice of uh leaving the comforts of being in uh, being there and seeking alternative careers path so Yeah, I don't want... I mean, I I want to remember this. I want to remember the stress that I went through during the application, all the uh, waiting, waiting there for not getting Uh, hearing back from any school. There's this, uh, like, there's this group of I called it I think it's called like Future Pi Slack. There's a Slack group of like a Discord community. <laughs> like, oh, um, what uh, a bummer! What a depressing. A job. Yeah, yeah. So like, it's. I mean, I was advised to just sign up, which I don't know. Maybe it's. Not, it was not the best decision. You go on there, and then people post their expect. Uh, like, and you would see. Um, I mean, you applied for positions, and you would see someone saying that. I got a job interview at this position. That's how you realize that okay, you were rejected. Oh. I didn't get one. And there was this morning that um someone and people write their experiences. It's it's fascinating. Someone should like compile these. I mean, someone wrote uh, that they went on a campus interview visit at one of the Ivy Leagues, and um, one day they got an email from department chair that can you have are you ready for a phone conversation is there a good time i want to have a phone conversation with you i mean often when you get a phone conversation that's a good thing or like you call mm-hmm. uh, it's a good thing meaning that they want to offer you the job right so this person mm, gets all happy and excited and uh the department chair um, gets on the phone tells uh, them that you did not get the job mm. bye and the person was complaining that i mean you could have done this over via email, right? This was not necessary. So I, I read that one morning before going to work. And I that same day, I got an email from department chair in Madison, Wisconsin, that, Ali, you have time for a phone conversation. Oh, no. And this is in my head yeah. now. That's, okay, I didn't get this one too. Oh. And I'm just, I'm waiting for her to call me and say that I didn't get the job. So I feel the stress. And like we we talk, and she starts by saying that Ali, I have some good news for you. Oh, like, yeah, good news. <laughs> is it like good, good? And she's like, yeah, I wouldn't have called you otherwise. I mean, and th- it was hard for me to believe because that because of like that morning, I exper- I read that thing that happened to this other person. So, like, one thing I don't want to forget uh, is this feeling, and yeah, like this valid feeling of. Um, being in this stressful situation that none of us signed up for mm. when we started going into grad school. We thought it would be all like, do your job. And if you do your job correctly, you will get a job. Oh, right? Out. Yeah. It's like, like medical doctors, right? I mean, if you do your job correctly, you will get a job that you like, right? Maybe it's not in that institute or that hospital specifically, but you will get a job as a, a practicing doctor if you don't screw it up right in science there's no guarantee like that maybe many of us entered thinking that way that like i'll get my job done like what do you need do you need the cns paper do you need me to get grants i mean we jump through all these like arbitrary hoops that you're setting up right and still there it's just a gamble so i mean part of me going into academia is that like i don't want to be just a scientist i want to Uh, have a voice and be activist and be leader, have a say in trying. And there are good people, friends of mine who are like, I think we are a team together, like good younger generation uh, who have like some support among the more senior generation. But I think, I mean, we will try to change things. I hope this is not like Obama change, like talking about things, but I'll, Let's check in, maybe. Yeah, we'll check later in later. let Yeah, I mean, I don't want this to be one of those career panels. Sound like one of those survival stories.
1: That- we don't have time now. Maybe, I'll, maybe next time I'll tell you. Unless I've already told you, my just getting into graduate school was was kind of a long story and involved phone calls, negative, positive, and negative for me as well. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Are we ending on a high note? Is that a high? It's done. This is a high note. It's this a is high this note. Future. Okay. Ali yeah, Luhabbi, the dopamine yes, guy, foolishly optimistic, going to change <laughs> things and lead the change. That's, I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. All right.
0: Yep. Better future. <laughs> okay.
1: I alone produce Brain Inspired. If you value this podcast, consider supporting it through Patreon to access full versions of all the episodes and to join our discord community. Or if you want to learn more about the intersection of neuroscience and AI, consider signing up for my online course, NeuroAI: the quest to explain intelligence. Go to braininspired.co to learn more. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. You're hearing music by the new year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you. Thank you for your support. See you next time.